I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent. We're also joined by Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, who's been in Singapore. And she's been talking to Rohan Mahadevan, who is the Asian head of PayPal. This week, we'll be talking about Barclays and the arrival of a new activist shareholder. Secondly, the Financial Stability Board, the global regulatory body, has changed tack. And finally, to that interview with the head of PayPal Asia. First, though, a look at Barclays. We've recorded this segment earlier. It's an activist investment fund which has acquired a significant interest in Barclays, one of Britain's biggest banks, increasing pressure on management to turn around the bank's recent faltering performance. Well, to talk about that, Hannah Murphy spoke to Martin Arnold, the FT's banking editor, and Jonathan Guthrie, head of Lex. She began by asking Martin how much money the firm, Sherborne, controlled by Edward Bramson, had put into Barclays and why we should care. I can tell you what Sherborne has disclosed, which is that it has invested £580 million in Barclays shares and derivatives And as a result of that, it says that it now owns just under 2% of Barclays voting rights directly through shares held and another just over 3.2% through derivatives. And as you mentioned at the start, as a result of that, it's got between 5.1 and 5.2% of voting rights in Barclays, which Barclays says, if you go by voting rights, makes it the fourth largest investor in one of Britain's biggest banks behind Capital Group. BlackRock and the Qatar Investment Authority. So that's how much they've spent. And the reason we care is because, as you said, Sherborne is not a typical institutional investor. It is well known as an activist investor and has carried out activist campaigns pushing for changes in management, changes in strategy at several UK financial services groups, including FNC, the asset management company, and a couple of private equity groups, Electra and 3i both were listed private equity groups 3i never actually went ahead with the activist side of its mandate because the shares rose in the first few months of its ownership so it was able to book a profit and sold fairly quickly without actually pushing for any changes now barclays is a much bigger kettle of fish its market capitalization is over 30 billion pounds it's one of the uk's four big clearing banks It's incredibly strategically important. On an international level, it is classed by global regulators as a globally systemically important institution. So this is a much bigger chunk to bite off for Sherborne. And what are the main reasons for Barclays' recent underperformance and what progress has it made in fixing those problems? Barclays has had a tough time of late. Almost really since the financial crisis, it has been struggling 
Last year, the bank was one of the worst performing shares in the sector. It fell more than 12% last year, while the European banking index rose some 7.5%. And there are multiple reasons for this. One is that Barclays has been heavily exposed to the fixed income trading markets, which have been incredibly calm. And that means very little activity because there's been low volatility. And they've suffered as a result of that rapid fall in revenues in one of the core parts of the Barclays Investment Bank. They've also been hit by changing capital requirements. They had operated with very little capital before the financial crisis. And since the crisis, regulators have been forcing them to increase the amount of capital they hold against their assets. And that's reduced the return on equity that they can generate and force them to shrink the balance sheet. And finally, they have been hit by rather a large amount of litigation and they've paid billions of pounds to settle things like investigations by regulators into fixing the LIBOR interest rate market, also the foreign exchange market. And they're not out of the woods yet. There are several big live investigations that are still outstanding on the bank. So all of that has led to lots of restructuring, lots of heavy charges and poor profitability. I mean, for 2017, the bank last month reported a loss of over £1.9 billion. And I think if you take all the years since the financial crisis, in more than half of them, it's actually made a net loss. So it's been struggling for a while. Not looking great. Jonathan, what do we know about Mr. Bramson and his record as an activist investor? Is he sort of likely to seek to make quick disposals of, say, Barclay Card? Well, Edward Bramson is actually a guy who's originally English, but he moved to the US and he went to Wall Street where he's been quite successful as an activist. Where he's best known, really, I think, in the UK is over the last few years. The two deals that were mentioned by Martin, so Foreign and Colonial and Electra, and also this brief flirtation with 3i, what he does tend to do is go in and try and get on the board. He tries to get representatives on the board. He then will tend to look at the business from the bottom up and decide how he thinks it might be run better. He has a city fan club, so he's a bunch of investors who think he's very good. And it's quite likely that he might have spoken to them because activists typically do speak to big long funds before they take stakes to see if they're likely to get any leverage. And I think he's quite well regarded, to be fair. Electra seemed a bit more of a punt than foreign and colonial, but he won there, of course, and got in and went through the restructuring and released quite a lot of value. What he might do at Barclays, I think, is really anybody's guess at the moment. What he showed with 3i, where he never actually declared his hand in terms of what he would like them to do because they were already on a tear. What that showed is that he may sit tight and decide where he's going to go with it based on the response and the way that both the city and perhaps even politicians and the broader public respond in the UK. There are some pretty obvious things you could do in terms of making disposals to release some value within Barclays. I think it's fair to say that the management there has not really covered itself in glory. The disposal of the African businesses, I think, look like a reasonable piece of tidying up. There's probably quite a lot more you could do. And there is quite a lot of jeopardy concerning the chief executive, Jess Staley. And you mentioned these fans in the city. How much influence does he have in the city of London? And what sort of hurdles might he face? I think he's quite well regarded. He does tend to want to be on the board, which I think will make it possibly a bit tougher at Barclays, of course, because there are financial regulators there who care deeply about who's running Barclays and the prudence of what they do. 
Um, he hasn't tended to be involved with anything like this as big, complex lender of this sort. Fund management houses are a simpler proposition. In some respects, I think he's picking on a weaker situation than was the case in Electra, where the performance wasn't as bad as all that. On the other hand, this is a vastly more complex situation, and there is also very large political jeopardy here. Barclays is an iconic business, which has been through some tough times, and we've seen a very strong political and public reaction to the GKN Melrose takeover bid. I think we're living in quite protectionist times, so it would be very interesting to see how this develops beyond the borders of the city. What you tend to find quite often is that investors and investment analysts concentrate on the financials. They're not so good on the broader picture, and that can be quite unpredictable, and there can be quite a lot of momentum in campaigns against intervention in big companies, sometimes even interventions which have quite a good rationale behind them. And just finally, Martin, Barclays chief executive Jess Staley has been under a bit of a cloud since he was criticised for trying to identify a whistleblower. What does his future look like now? Well, things are turning around to a certain extent for Jez. Whether they're turning around fast enough for Mr Bramson remains to be seen. You're right that there is this cloud hanging over him personally, that he's being investigated by US and UK regulators for attempting to unmask a whistleblower. But with the annual results last month, he promised to restore the dividend to the level it had been before he took over and decided to cut the dividend by more than half. He's also said that the bank will benefit strongly from recent US cuts to corporation tax. And he said that volatility has been surging since the start of this year, and that's expected to help the Barclays Investment Bank. So things are showing signs of turning around. There are still some other clouds out there. The bank is being sued by the US Department of Justice over alleged mis-selling of subprime mortgage securities before the financial crisis. And it also faces criminal charges along with a handful of former Barclays executives, including the former chief executive John Varley in the UK, where it's being criminally charged over the details of its fundraising from Qatar in 2008 in the heat of the financial crisis. So big clouds still hanging over them. But in terms of the performance of the business, things are starting to move in Jez Staley's favour. He's also talked about the potential for a share buyback, which would be a very attractive idea for investors, including presumably Mr. Bramson. And you could see the share price start to move upwards. At the moment, Barclays is trading at a discount of some 30 to 40 percent to its book value, whereas the big US banks are performing much better with a much higher return on equity and they're trading above their book value. So Barclays could see a big increase in its value. But as I mentioned, there are still these regulatory clouds, so they need to clear those and start to show some evidence that they're out of the woods. Well, let's move on to our second story. And I'm joined by Caroline, who's here to talk about the FSB. This is the Financial Stability Board, the global body that oversees and coordinates banking regulation. You've been writing, Caroline, about the pivot that the FSB is going through. What exactly is happening? That's right. It's a bit of an end of an era, really. Mark Carney, who is the governor of the Bank of England, but also chairs the Financial Stability Board, wrote a letter to the G20 finance ministers and central bankers who essentially make up the FSB ahead of their summit in Argentina at the beginning of this week. And he described this pivot from making new regulations 
to instead evaluating the consequences of the plethora of rules that the FSB has made over the last decade. So this is interesting for a number of reasons, and not least because this kind of regulatory pause comes as the US in particular is rolling back a lot of the post-crisis reforms that were put in place over the last decade. And notably, we reported last week that the US Treasury wants to nominate Randall Qualls, who is the new Fed governor who supervises the big banks, as a replacement for Mr. Carney at the FSB when he steps down at the end of the year. Yeah, it very much looks like a clever bit of politics, doesn't it, from Mr. Carney, because he doesn't want to clearly hand over the reins of the FSB, which I think he does at the end of this year, to whoever his successor might be, while seeming that all his work is being undone by that successor. If he can kind of paint the picture of a smooth transition, then so much the better. Yeah, I think there's a few things going on. I mean, first of all is the question of whether Qualls will be there to reinvigorate the FSB. There has been some scepticism in the states expressed as to both the FSB and the Basel Committee. They're, you know, these supranational agencies full of unelected officials that tell countries what to do, essentially. And obviously the US has some scepticism over that. But what better way to control that global agenda other than by sitting on it and controlling it yourself? Exactly. So there is... And the converse, is he indeed the sort of fifth column, as it were, that might be put in place to take the whole institution down? But I think a few things to talk about in terms of Mr. Carney's chairmanship. It is true that in various fora, they have now paused and done a similar sort of evaluation, not least at the Bank of England itself, And of course, at the Basel Committee, which is the technocratic institution that kind of comes under the FSB, isn't it? Well, they work side by side and have slightly different remits. But yeah, I mean, there has been in the last couple of years, I think, a recognition that political memories of the financial crisis have faded. And therefore, regulators and central bankers need political buy-in to make fundamental reforms. And the political philosophy of the day at the moment is economic growth and job creation. It's not firefighting banks. So there has been this pause more widely in the world. And I think the FSB is just yet another institution that's recognising that. And in Mr. Carney's letter, he does say that the FSB can only operate via consensus membership and reflect the philosophies of its constituent members. And therefore, if those members are politically going along a different path, then I think it's probably some pragmatism that's going on here. Yeah, that is a telling point. Uh, It'll be fascinating to see if Mr. Qualls is indeed confirmed as the US nominee and as the FSB chairman in due course. Let's move on to our third and final topic. Laura Noonan has been in Singapore and she's been interviewing Rohan Mahadevan, who's the Asian head of PayPal. Asia is an interesting market. You have a lot of competition and innovation in the payment space, but also you have a lot of cash. What do you see as being the main hurdle that PayPal has to climb there? The competition is really about cash. That's why we're partnering with a lot of people, because it's really about how do we go and try to move people from a cash economy to a cashless economy? There's maybe three dimensions, I would say, in that, from my perspective. One dimension is people need to actually change their behavior, and that takes a long time. And that's the area where I'm not necessarily going to go and invest a lot of time in trying to drive behavior change. The second area is today people are actually trying to transact with digital goods, but they have a lot of problem doing it. Maybe they don't have the right cards, they don't have the faster access, they don't have the right protections, they don't have anything. 
So that's where companies like ours come in and actually try and remove the friction out of the process. That's the sweet spot that we want to play in where the behavior has changed and we're just making it easier, safer, and simpler to make sure things happen. And then there's a third bucket, which is the regulator bucket. And I think the regulators in Asia are playing a fantastic role. And in my opinion, they have two roles, right? The one role is to actually keep things safe, um, secure, and you know, making sure that there's a stability in any payment network that comes in, which is the regulatory side of things. Um, and then they have an, also an opportunity to accelerate digitization. And, you know, the th three or four markets around here that are really putting a lot of, I mean, the, the number one market that I think has really led what a regular can do is India. India, with the demonetization that happened two years ago, has just really changed the mindset of consumers there. I mean, that was a big move to demonetize, you know, the currencies over there. And then they have then put into new things where they've basically said for things under 2,000 rupees, they're, they're going to refund the banks all the interchange fees, right? So they're trying to make sure that when consumers come to a store, the store owner realizes, hey, I don't mind accepting a debit card because then I know it's not going to cost me more, right? Things like that. Then, of course, you have, you know, the MAS, right? And the MAS has, you know, is, is forecasting to have a cashless economy. They're making big strides in trying to ensure that people are getting onto the pay now solutions and making sure that they can actually disperse their money into people's accounts directly. So I think there's a lot of things that governments can actually do in order to drive that change in behavior and create that mindset. So we've got a lot of, in my opinion, really good tailwinds that are coming for the digital economy globally. Given that Asia is a market where there's a lot of innovation and a lot of competition in the payment space, how difficult is it for more established firms like yours to stay relevant and to win share? I think there's tremendous amount of innovation happening across the world. You know, we watch this talent, right? We watch which companies get traction, which companies don't, how they scale, how they don't. In my personal opinion, I need to also make sure that we're separating out the noise from the reality. And there's also a lot of noise in the market. And so for us, what's really important is to ensure that we're keeping in touch with these entrepreneurs, with the partners who are actually also supporting them, with venture capitalists in the market. And we're, we're understanding how things are evolving. We're learning from some of them. And then some of them actually, we decide to go and do acquisitions. Like we did acquisitions of Braintree a few years ago. We did acquisitions of Zoom. And so as these companies mature, and they show that they're giving great traction and providing great value for consumers, then we can use our balance sheet and start investing and doing acquisitions as well. It's part of any business, any business who's, who's doing what they should be doing for their shareholders and for their customers are going to be constantly evaluating opportunities and deals across the globe. And, you know, depending on where you are in your evolution of it, different companies will not look at much smaller organizations because of the amount of time and investment it takes. Okay. But they'll try to see as these companies gain traction, they gain a customer base, they understand the rhythm that they're playing, and then, you know, we can deploy our capital to go ahead and acquire them as well. And how much bigger is the opportunity for PayPal going to be once we see cash declining and once we see all of these technologies being really leveraged? Right now, PayPal is doing $451 billion in payment volume globally. And we're at about 16% of global e-commerce, e-commerce. But with the mobile phone, we're really talking about commerce and retail. And that market is trillions of dollars. So the opportunity for us, quite frankly, is all ahead. So, I mean, in my opinion, sky's the limit. I think, you know, you can get a sense of where 
I believe ASEAN can go if you just take a look at what's happened in China. In China last year, the total amount of mobile payments that took place domestically was about $15 trillion. And this is because it's become part of them paying bills, it's become part of them paying the local food person, it's become a way of life. And so if you take that as any indication of what the possibility is in the, you know, 2 billion, 3 billion people outside of China, I think you could easily see something equivalent or much more than that. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Caroline and Laura here and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.